All right. So we had uh, just started the Sangha morning and and uh, the. So we'll start again and start again. And this is actually quite a valuable point that we all in our society have taught been taught as a child that we're not worthy. That we're not good enough. Uh, and the child easily buys that based upon the evidence that the child has. I mean, he sees everybody bigger than he is, and uh, uh, he has to wait his turn and all of that kind of stuff. And very few of us then ever get over that rule that we're not good enough. And that um, there was actually a psychologist who brought about the concept of permission, protection, and potency. And in this regard, we're talking about permission. That you've got a rule that's saying you don't have permission, and we need to address that inside one's own mind to say that you do have permission or that there is no authority to either deny you or to give you permission. That that's something that you do within your own mind based upon the habits that we had as a child. So as a child, the adults would give us either permission or not permission. And now we think that we need some authority to give us permission or not permission to where in fact you're the authority of your own mind now. If you'll take that power, you can give yourself all the permission you need to feel as good as you want to feel. I had a thought come up. Um, yeah, so like um, for me, I've kind of thought about this before and I've went into it a little bit. And so when we're good or when, that's what it really comes down to is what we believe is good. And so like what I have kind of come to realize is that um, when we're growing up, you know, we usually get spanked and called bad and then we do something other and it's like it's good and then we get a reward. And we definitely mm -hmm. never get spanked for being good. So deep down, we kind of begin to associate this desire to be good and as, as good as being worthy of love and positivity. And so if that is kind of a thing that's going on in us, if that's a programming and a belief system that we have, it's almost like we believe we're OK to feel good when we are good. And so if we want to do an examination, you know, just take um, a second and examine what you think good means. Uh, does it mean to be honest and uh, selfless? And if you're not doing those things, technically you're not, but yeah, you're not fulfilling your own obligation to feel good when you are good. So um, that's a good thing to actually, question, you know. Actually, that's that's an important point, and I agree with it in a way. Um, that uh, you're saying that if we if we feel good, we are good. That's right? the subconscious like association. Okay. Yeah. Another way of thinking about it is, is that it doesn't matter what you were told. You're already OK. Good and bad is not the issue. But are you OK? And the answer to that is, is that if you're still alive and still breathing, you're OK. You survived up to this present moment. That's good enough. Right. Yeah, the, 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 yeah, the whole concept of good and bad uh, is part of the issue. Because good and bad is um, 
Well, it's criticism. It's critical thinking that in fact, um, the found it's the very, very foundation of the Bible. In the beginning, the uh, chapter of Genesis, this is the first really big, important metaphor. And that is the story of Adam and Eve. The story of Adam and Eve is often missed out completely because people get the idea that the, that the, the storyline and the pieces of the story are important. And so people get all wrapped up in what's an apple and what's a talking snake and the woman did it and all of that kind of stuff. And all of that misses the point of the teaching. And the point of the teaching is, is that you have to put up with the results of the judgments that you make. That you have to eat the fruit of your knowledge of good and evil. Mm hmm. If you see something good and something bad, when in fact what you're doing is you're actually looking at the way things really are, you're looking at paradise. And here you are then taking that paradise and saying, I don't like this part of paradise. Like for instance, the example I use is that I live here in a paradise. This is a marvelous jungle forest uh, um, plantation. It's a paradise. I've got a beautiful tree right here. Wait a minute, that tree's got a yellow leaf on it. I'm going to have to go pull that tree up because I don't like yellow leaves. And if I do that with all the trees that's got yellow leaves in it, I'll kill all the trees, but that's okay because I don't like yellow leaves. All right, that's what happens with our uh, mentality is, is that we destroy our own paradise. And we do that through our judgments, and our judgments are of good and bad right and wrong. Instead of looking at it from a nurturing position, we'd look at it from a critical position. Are you good enough so that you have permission to feel good is actually the state that Adam and Eve is in, which naturally means that now they're going to destroy their own paradise because they're not good enough. All right. Corey, Alex, Robert, Jeff, Chris, Miguel, you all okay? Yeah. You're, you're okay already. Relish in that, that you've survived, you're alive. Now, the interesting point is, is that uh, we've got a death sentence. That's about two minutes from now. You're going to die in two minutes. But you can get a reprieve. All you need to do is take the next breath. Very little to do. But if you can, in fact, take the next breath, then that's all you need to do to, to survive. So you'll be good enough. You'll be good to go. All you have to do is breathe. That's a very interesting concept that we can just breathe. And if we can just breathe, we're all right. We're okay. There'll come a time when breathing gets really hard. The and question is, is can, let's plan on that, but we can plan on that by breathing well now. Let's enjoy this breath. You may not have one. In fact, it's guaranteed that you're not going to have one someday. So let's have the breath that we have now rather than saying, oh, I can't breathe until I'm good enough. 
that's how we said it. We, I'm not good enough, okay? And because of that, um, if we could breathe joy into the breath, then that breathing in the joy is actually the satisfaction that I'm still alive. That, hey, it doesn't matter how bad they hurt me, they didn't destroy me, but I'm still here. That begins to give us the attitude that I can survive. I can, I can, you've heard that song, I think, you know, uh, <clears throat> I will survive. So think about it like that. I'm going to survive this. It can't be that bad. In fact, it's not bad at all. Alex, you had a question. Yeah, I was going to say it's really funny we're talking about this because I have COVID and I've, <clears throat> I've been experiencing. Oh, well, congratulations. Some... Mother Nature loves you. <laughs> <laughs> giving you a gift. <laughs> I've been experiencing some shortness of breath and my girlfriend and I have been talking about whether or not I should go to the hospital for the last hour. And then I get on the call with you and you're like, well, one day you won't have your breath. So enjoy it. <laughs> and I'm over here like, well, man, I'm worried. I'm not getting enough. But we'll make I, sure that you're breathing. That's that's one of the things. In fact, this is a very interesting point. It's uh, let us call it super advanced Dhamma. And um, uh, the example is Emmanuel uh, Sherman, who was uh, first off in, in his former life, he was uh, um, an artist, a, um, uh, a commercial artist. And then he went to Japan for Zen and picked up Zen art. And then he came to live with uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. <clears throat> and did a lot of artwork for that that became the spiritual theater. And then he moved to this island to Wat Khao Tum. And so he is now the dead patriarch. He died in 1962, so we're going back pretty far. And uh, um, <clears throat> there's still a sarcophagus at the, uh, the Wat for him with the famous story that he decided <clears throat> that he was not going to get up. He was going to sit here under this tree like the Buddha until he became enlightened. That kind of stuff happens and, and it seems to be quite Zen oriented. And in the process of that, and by the way, he lived in the cave, uh, <clears throat> which is not conducive to good health anyway. And so he would sit under the tree in front of the cave and caught pneumonia. And that he didn't do what he needed to do about the pneumonia. And so he actually died of pneumonia sitting under the tree when he was 15 miles or 15 kilometers to the hospital if he had gone. Mm. <clears throat> now, after his death, there was an entire spiritual theater made of uh, based upon the artwork that he did. And some of it is quite profound. Uh, <clears throat> but this in this is an interesting point about pneumonia that it seems to be a common occurrence not just for monks to die but it is common worldwide what is pneumonia is when the lungs fill with fluid and water and mucus and whatever so that the breathing is blocked because of the mucus 
This happened to me about five or six years ago. I caught pneumonia. <clears throat> Wife took some, take me, puts me into the hospital and I stay one day in the hospital on the oxygen. Then I come home, I'm ready to go. And uh, the pneumonia starts up again. And this time I say, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do hardcore Anapanasati right now. And it took about 24 hours to clean that mucus out of the lungs. All right, through the breathing. And mm. so this breathing is, in fact, one of the cures for a pneumonia. And pneumonia is a common um, actual cause of death. But that's, in fact, what the problem with COVID in the very beginning was, is that people like you, Alex, are laying on their back making it difficult to breathe. That if you would sit up, you could breathe better. Hmm. Oh, uh, guys, not, oh, uh, not to interrupt, but I have another friend that just joined, my friend Shane. Uh, he's here, so. Um, okay. I, yeah, hi, Shane. He's Domerado and everybody, so. I'm anywhere online. Anyway, that's all. Yeah. That's interesting, Domerado, because I haven't seen that anywhere online. We've like researched I, a lot. I of know. Let's let's go. Let I know. That's the whole point. Look at the way that hospital beds are built. That in fact, in the very very early days of COVID, they lost and killed a lot of people in the hospital by putting them on respirators and having them lay in the bed the way that hospital beds are built. They're built for comfort. Right. And so they've got this machine or actually they've got motors on them now. So that, but in my day, they had a crank so that you could crank up the middle and crank up the uh, the back of it. And people have been uh, wanting to sit up a bit and still lay down. What they found out was, is that um, basically if you have your back with pressure, like laying on the back, that prevents the lower part of the lungs from being able to function. If you're laying flat on your stomach, then your whole weight of the body is on it. But if you're going to lay down, you need to lay down on the side so that the lungs can open. And then you intentionally open them. Intentionally breathe as if you're breathing the junk that's in the lungs that has been collected because of the COVID in the lungs. You're intentionally breathing that out that the issue is the outbreath. Now, the doctors actually began to figure that out. They figured out that if they put someone on a respirator in a normal posture in the bed, they're going to kill them. And they were killing a lot of people in March of 2020 because of bad posture. But they stopped doing that and they started having people lay differently, laying on their sides or whatever in the intensive care room. And then the uh, the number of deaths from COVID began to decline. And I think so they also the, turn the patients, uh, Domerato. Pardon? They're, they're constantly turning patients in bed. Yes. On the stomach, on the side, on the back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly so. But if you leave the patients laying on the back, which is easy for them to work on the patient that's laying on his back, and you have that all of that machinery for helping him breathe on his back, 
And they, I mean, they, they knew that if you put somebody on one of those respirators and leave them in that posture, you're going to kill them. It may take 21 days to kill them, but you're going to kill them. If they go on the respirator, they're not going to be able to breathe coming <clears throat> off of it. And so they wow. had to make some changes. And that changing of the posture and rolling the body over and getting it to breathe better was the, the main issue. Why would you put someone on a respirator? when all you needed to do was teach him to breathe. In fact, that was why um, a respiratory therapist became so common in the ICUs is to get people to start breathing on their own. Well, the Buddha was telling people to start breathing 2,500 years ago when the message hasn't yet published yet. <laughs> so Alex, that's my recommendation. If you've got COVID, breathe. Breathe as if your life depended upon it, because it does. Okay. <laughs> aye, aye, <All> right. Captain. <laughs> All right. If, um, have, have any of you ever heard of the concept, it's in Buddhism someplace, that one should practice their Dhamma or practice their meditation like their hair was on fire? Yes. That yeah. doesn't do really well for me. <laughs> uh-huh. Pardon? That doesn't really go well for me because then I start to set everything around me on fire too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that intense effort, ambition, that's not, yeah, I don't know. Well, I must have not worked hard enough because all my hair has been burned off. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yes, that's, there, there is a valuable point in that. And that with what, but it's a, uh, uh, actually it's better because of the culture. It's a better teaching for the Asians than it is for the Westerners because the Westerners are already going to do everything as if their life depended upon it somehow anyway, because the Western culture is set up like that. If you don't work, you don't eat is the mentality that they have. And so you're applying that uh, if you don't work, you don't eat. You're putting that kind of pressure on it when you hear uh, practices if your hair is on fire. Okay. But a better way of looking at it is, is that practices if your life depended upon it. Because that's what the really issue of the fire means. Because your well-being and your value of life and your uh, quality of life does depend upon if you practice as if it were important. That in fact, a way of saying it is, is that it's important to your well-being that you practice being happy, that you practice deep breathing, that you practice as if you were completely successful. And here we in our society, we have been taught that, oh, you're not good enough, you're not worthy. Some even have the idea that if I actually do feel good, I'll have to pay for it later. But yeah, I can I can get myself into a really good state, but then I'm going to have to pay for it. Something's going to go wrong. That I'd better not enjoy myself, that I might get punished. This can happen actually from, from kids that if they're in their room making a lot of noise and playing and everything like that, and then the parent comes in the room all angry and everything, you guys shut up, you're making too much noise or whatever like that. And so that's the kind of uh, situation that can cause us then to think that, oh, if I have enjoyment, if I have pleasure, 
I'm going to get punished somehow. But the exact opposite of that of that happening is, is that in fact your hair is on fire, but the hair is on fire from <clears throat> the thoughts, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy. But when we recognize that those just a set of rules that we have and those rules don't really mean anything, but in fact they prevent us from being able to enjoy this present moment. And that we can then take that to the point of that our breathing is vital in all of this. That in fact that that uh, that line about breathe, uh, practices if your hair is on fire means that we need to pay attention to the air. We need to pay attention to the breathing. And if we pay attention to the breathing, we actually pay attention to the breathing as if our life depended upon it, that it becomes really valuable and really important, this breathing. That your life actually does depend upon it. And sometimes we get, uh, because of illness or whatever, um, <clears throat> the chest feels tired. It feels um, like that it, it's too much work or it's too much effort to breathe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and that's when people die. It's because they have the attitude that it's too much pressure, it's too much difficult. And that um, that's also one of the issues of um, in deathbed scenes, the doctor has the, uh, the choice. Are we going to make this guy comfortable while he dies? Or are we going to uh, allow him in his discomfort to die. And the answer to that is, is that if you make him too comfortable by giving him morphine and the muscles relax, he will die. That making the patient comfortable at the, uh, at the point of death is almost the guarantee that they will die. But if you can make them a little bit uncomfortable, like going in with uh, grandma while she's there and tickle her feet and she jacks her feet back up and she says, you stop that. By doing so, she's actually taking a deep breath in order to yell at you to stop tickling her feet. So if you want granny to stay alive or if wife of Alex wants him to stay alive, go tickle his feet when he stops breathing. Abby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling my girlfriend you said that. What? <laughs> he said that if Alex starts to stop breathing, you can tickle his feet because that engages all the muscles and brings you back to life. <laughs> he said wife of Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so we can actually make a game of it, that your death is your final uh, match, it's your final game. Be ready yeah. for it. Be ready for it, okay? And one of the ways of being ready for it is, is that no matter what, you can still breathe. At least you can take one more breath. At least one more. And so that's the way that we uh, begin to practice, like as if your hair is on fire, is the idea of, well, I can do it just one more breath. 
I can at least do one more. I don't have to go feel bad yet. I can take one more breath and feel good. And then later I can go feel bad. But right now, just one more breath. Just one more breath. This is how we can practice that'll keep you alive. And not only that, but uh, with that breath of joy, we can gladden the mind. Hey, I survived that breath. Let me see if I can survive another one. So what about sleeping then? Because sleep, I won't be able to breathe like I am now. I don't understand. I won't be able to like focus on like each next breath like I am now when I'm sleeping. When you're sleeping? Well, make sure that you're positioning your body so that the body can breathe on its own comfortably, which means don't lay on your back, lay on your side. Okay. The Buddha was very, very big on that. In fact, there's a number of um, uh, Buddha rupas or what you call statues or icons littered all over Asia. Some of them are huge. There's one in Bangkok that's 80 feet long. And it's a statue of the reclining Buddha. It's very interesting that in meditation, all the Western mentality has only the sitting Buddha. But in fact, in Asia, we have the statues of all the various postures, the standing posture, the lying posture, the sitting posture, the walking posture, the Tudong monks, all of these statues are here to show how to actually lay down. And it's called the lion's pose. Now, in fact, my dogs do the lion's pose quite often, but you wouldn't want to call it the dog pose. But the dogs just lay on their side. Only occasionally does a dog lay on its back. But generally when they're sleeping, they lay on their side. This is the way that we were were talking about. If you will lay on your side and go to sleep intentionally with the idea, I will stay on my side during the whole night. Then if you wake up and stir to change your posture, you can change it from one side to to the other. Or even if you are laying down um, on your uh, on your chest, you can position your arms so that the so that the breathing will be available. Yeah. Okay, so laying on your side mostly is the um, uh, the issue, and that when you're not laying on your side, notice that and correct your posture. So we can say it that way of learning to lay in the bed on the side while you go to sleep, when you wake up and whenever you wake up during the night, you can remember, oh, I'm going to lay on my side. And we practice that as if our life depends upon it, because when COVID situation in in a way it does. When you've got um, pneumonia, when you've got fluid in the lungs, you have to make take take very careful care that you can breathe well. You want to empty the lungs out. If you've got mucus in the lungs that you can feel it, go ahead and cough that stuff up and get it out of the body. Well, it's it's quite funny. I know Robert has his hand up, so I don't mean to interrupt the question, That's but okay. a little comment. Um, you know, a dog only is ever on their back saying this is a proud dog owner uh, when they're playing or they want a belly rub, you know, that's it. One of those two things. Otherwise they're never on their back. 
Robert, you had a question or a hand yes. up. Yes. Um, um, when I am gladdening my mind, I reach a point um, where I become very afraid that if I become any happier, I'll basically lose control of my actions. I, I might go crazy. I might not be able to do. Basically, I might have like not be able to do like the right thing morally. And then it stops me from gladdening my mind. So my question is, if I do continue to become happier and happier and happier, will moral actions automatically result from that? Um, that's an actually interesting topic on its own that's completely different than what we're talking about. You're actually talking about that if I do well in this moment, if I continue to breathe, Later, I will become a bad person. I'll be a bad boy. Yes, right? because because, uh, for example, I can I could do I could be a criminal or I could do nothing all day and I can with your technique feel happy for no reason. And then I'm worried, will I continue to do nothing all day or become a criminal again? as a result of just feeling so happy and needing nobody's approval to be happy. And oh, I won't have morality as a result of just, just going I, all the way into this gladdening sort of I have kind hole. of heard that before, and actually it makes no sense at all. Let's look at it from a different perspective for a moment, and that is the perspective from a Sutta number 117 in the Majjhima Nikaya, which is the Great Forty, and is an exposition of the Eightfold Noble Path. The Buddha starts off talking about right noble view or not right noble viewing by talking about wrong view. And the wrong view is, is that basically it's a catchphrase of I can get away with it. All right, I can go and harm people and get away with it because there is no comma, there is no God, there is no authority, there is nothing that's going to stop me from behaving badly if that's what I want to do. Yes, like I've done okay. bad things and I feel guilty for it, but I can gladden my mind in spite of the guilt. So if I can do bad things again and then just gladden my mind and fix the guilt All again right. for myself. Well, well that's based upon wrong life. view then, according to the Buddha, that in fact you are not gaining pleasure from your wrongdoing that you're trying to gain pleasure in spite of your wrongdoing. That's an excellent point. That's an excellent okay. point. That you're not gaining, uh, um, that in fact, what we can say, this has to do with something about freedom that we can understand in the sense of the freedom to do things. You have in this regard of the wrong view, you have the freedom to go out and do harm, right? But the actual freedom that the Buddha is talking about is freedom from things, not freedom to do things. All right. Like the kid wants to go out. He wants to borrow daddy's car keys. And dad says, no, you can't go out tonight. And the kid says, I want freedom. Actually, the freedom that the child is looking for is not freedom. Uh, that's correct freedom. He's wanting the freedom to go out with dad's car to misbehave or to do bad or to whatever like that and that the real freedom is to not want to go out 
to do harm. So yes. one's real freedom then is to uh, to be free from wanting to do things that cause other people harm. Right, and it, you're saying that if I become so so happy by gladdening my mind, I will. That's will be the, the result. Will be good for everyone. Like I will become like a nice person. Absolutely. Let's look at it in a little bit further from from this perspective that if you do gladden your mind and you do have right noble viewing so that you can see what's going on and can gladden your mind and brighten your mind, then with that bright mind, you become more unified, more whole. And the the catchphrase would be if you have pleasure and a gladdened mind that you don't want anything because you're satisfied right now. If you don't want anything, then it's unlikely for you to go kill somebody to get it. It's unlikely for you to go rob someone to get what you want if you don't want anything. And so bad behavior is always done from the perspective of wanting. Only victims harm people. Winners, champions, don't harm people. Only victims harm people. Why? Because they want something and they want it so badly they're willing to take it. They're willing to harm people in order to get their way, but they're doing it from a completely deluded position of that I have no freedom without getting what I want. And so much of the practice that we have with the practice of Anapanasati is to get ourselves in a state of satisfaction and a state of joy, which means that puts you in a position where you're not going to go harm people. You're not going to hurt someone when you don't want anything from them. Um, what if you can actually in, just allow them to go misbehave and you don't care. It's not your business. What if, However, what if, if it does matter to you because they're doing wrong uh, behavior, but they're really intent, only thing that you can do is fight with them. You're creating more trouble by trying to prevent trouble. The better thing to do is to leave trouble, to walk away from it. But what if um, gladdening my mind and putting myself in a state of satisfaction feels like I'm harming myself or I'm harming some part of myself? Ah, that's exactly where this superego or this uh, set of rules or standards come in. How dare you feel that good? You haven't done what's needed to be done to deserve it. Yeah. Okay. And so it's good then for you to look at those kind of rules that you made for yourself. How good do you have to be before you can deserve to feel good? Or is it merely... That if you're not doing anything right now, then you're not doing harm right now. Therefore, you are perfect right now in your morality. Right this very moment, in this very minute, let us say that the meditator is sitting in the meditation hall. While he is sitting there in the meditation hall with his arm, uh, with his eyes closed and his legs folded and his arms folded, he is harming no one. And yet your general average meditator sitting in that meditation hall like that is also harming himself because he's not appreciating the fact that he's actually being quite uh, moral in that moment. That, hey, I'm completely secluded from all wrongdoing. Wow, that's nice. Right now, I'm not hurting anybody. 
Mm. Mm. I think that I think that answers my question. I'm just like, what if um, I'm afraid of just the unknown, or just it's there's no sort of I don't really feel like there's any reason to be afraid, but just when I become that happy, I just become very afraid. Um, should I continue to make myself more glad and satisfied? Actually, if you have the gladness and the satisfaction, but you still are feeling the fear, go examine it. Chase it around. First off, make it your friend. Hello, darkness. Hello, fear, my old friend. I've, you know, I've seen you before. Here you come again. Mm. All right. So when we see it like that, then we can actually inspect it. What is the fear? What mm. are the sensations in the body that lead to fear? Can I make the fear greater and smaller? Can I learn to control it? Can I make it throb big when I breathe in and throb small when I breathe out? Is it throbbing at all or is it just a tightness? If it's a tightness, where is the tightness? Is it the tightness in the tummy? Can I move it down to the tummy? Is it in the chest? Can I move it up to the throat? Can I, in fact, notice that there is tightness in my throat that I didn't notice before? Wow, those are really useful. Those are really useful um, pointers for investigation. Thank you. That answers my question. That, right. That, well, this is the whole technique of this body scanning that is uh, the hallmark of the Goenka method, which is actually paying attention mostly to step three of Anapanasati of experiencing the body. So when your body is afraid or actually most any time, it's a good thing to check out your body. Like, am I breathing well? Is there fear there? Is there fear? Oh, well, where is it? Is it on the left side or is it on the right side? Can I move it down to the kidneys? Can I put it on my big toe? Can I make my toe and only the toe feel afraid? And the rest of the body is doing good. Can I do that kind of stuff? Of course you can't, but at least it's a game that you can play. You make friends with it. Mm. I right. think it's interesting that Anapanasati focuses on the abdomen region, which is where I tend to feel fear and also joy most um, intensely, like that's where they're mm -hmm. centered. Is the, do you think that's related or just a coincidence? Uh, I think it's physiological and the Buddha knew physiology. That's the answer, that he was smart, he looked, he investigated. And I invite you to do exactly the same thing, to investigate, to look, to find out where the fear is. Now, normally the fear uh, is associated with fearful thoughts. Fearful feelings are associated with fearful thoughts. And those fearful thoughts can come in very quickly. It only takes a mind moment or two, and it can actually be even such a, a color. An example of that is, say that you've got an email uh, app on your computer that has a particular color background, and none of the other apps that you use have that particular color. All right. And now it, uh, you have a job or something such that you have to write some emails, some of which are quite distasteful. And all that mind needs is just the image of the color of the screen of the background of the emails is one mind moment, just a flash. But that's enough to kick off the adrenaline 
this is, you know, with the thought kind of, oh, I've got work to do or something needs to be done or I've got an email to write or something like that. But the original point was just a flash of color. If you can catch those mind moments that is just a flash and recognizing that those are the flashes that actually cause the, the suffering, then when that flash comes up, you can say, aha, I see you. Aha. Hello, darkness, my old friend. There you are. And so you actually catch it before the, the uh, it actually balls up into actual fear. That sounds like a really fun game to play in my practice. That sounds really engaging. I'll try that out. Thanks. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. Making it making it a game of it. Can you check? Oh, where's that fear? Where is it? I, I can find it here someplace. Hey, Domorado. Ah, yes, Alex. Um, if the breathing gets harder, like if, if I'm finding that it's hard to catch my breath, a lot of people recommend to go to the hospital. But considering what you said about respirators and that they lay you down, do you think it would be more dangerous for me to go to the hospital rather than just be here and focus on my breathing? Um, you, you're asking a great problem. big question, and the answer can be a very small answer. All right. Instead of talking about, should I go to the hospital? You're asking that question based upon what might be happening in the future. A much better way of looking at it is, is that am I breathing okay right now? Do I need help breathing right now? Can I actually, if I am having trouble breathing right now, can I make sure that I can breathe at least long enough to get to the hospital? Okay, and if you say, oh, well, I can continue to breathing and not only that, but if you recognize that a lot of the hospital, they can't help you. Really, most of the people, especially in Western culture, almost everyone dies in a hospital. So the one way to avoid dying is don't go to the hospital. Because so many people don't die because they don't go to the hospital, that hospitals are dangerous places. That, uh, <laughs> pardon? That's fucking nuts. Yeah, that, um, I mean, why would someone who is, let us say, very susceptible and therefore very dangerously afraid of COVID, why would he want to go to a hospital where they have COVID patients? Right? Yeah, I don't know. So it just this is the whole point now. Right. Our, our, our society is set up to avoid death and to avoid personal responsibility. And mm -hmm. so they put businesses together like hospitals or what now. Now, basically, in the old days, hospitals were hospitals. But starting in the 1980s, during the Reagan administration, all hospitals were changed into businesses. Every hospital is a business now, not a hospital. They're in the business of taking in sick people. They're not necessarily in the business of discharging people. How do you know all this, Domorado? Because of my background, I have worked in hospitals. I have worked in mental institutions. I have been the administrator of a long-term care facility. 
All right. I've been around a whole lot of crazy people. <laughs> I mean, it's, and it's most of them wore the uniforms. <laughs> it's it's scary thing though, you know, because online it says if your oxygen goes below ninety percent, you know, have an oximeter oximeter nearby. If it goes below ninety percent, go into the hospital. Mm -hmm. Blood pressure is too high. Go in the hospital if you feel like you can't catch your breath. That's a severe enough uh, occasion to go to the hospital. But what you're uh, saying, but in that it, case, it, that's it, waiting way too long. You're nowhere near that state right now. You're 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 not sick enough to just lay there needing a medical attention. That you're you're able to sit up. So yeah. that's the thing to do is is to sit up. And to make sure that this breath is a long, deep breath. Make Wait, sure that it's a cleansing breath. Are you saying, though, not to go to the hospital even if it does get that severe? I'm, I'm not making any kind of recommendations to go or to not go to the hospital. That decision you're going to have no. to make. But you do it based upon not a set of rules of should I you hear the guy uh I mean everybody on the call did you hear his word when he said should I go to the hospital yeah I mean that, we're talking yeah. about life and death here I think should no, has we're talking about rules and this, the life and death is in the rules um, Alex, um, just to interject, something um, Keyshawn said to me was that um, I was talking not about life and death. I was talking about someone else was talking about the topic of like spirituality and enlightenment and stuff. And um, I said uh, because I'd like reached some like state in my meditation that I thought was like enlightenment. I was like, how can I ever feel happy again after knowing that like the opposite of like everything I've known in my like whole rest of my life like exists? And he said. He just pointed out that like your thought of enlightenment, like literally it's not enlightenment and your thought of death, literally it's not the actual death. It's just the thought of your mind. So if you look like super literally and it's completely irrational to do this and like those against all of our like survival based mental programming that's kept us alive for like all of like evolution and stuff. Like if you like really literally like look at it, it's just a thought. So it's not actually death. It's just a thought of death. Which is pretty, I mean, it's irrational. I get that. But like, that's kind of the whole thing we're doing here. It's like overcoming irrational fears, which is like supposedly all fears. No in a way. All right. I've so Alex, back to the, back to what we were talking about a minute ago. Let's put it from this perspective. That right now you're having thoughts about, should I go to the hospital or not? And I'm inviting you to change that into should I be taking a really deep breath right now so I don't have to go to the hospital? That's what I'm doing. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm taking deep breaths. <laughs> okay. Well, that's the recommendation. The recommendation of the Buddha is be mindful to breathe in long. To be mindful to breathe out long. To be mindful to make that exchange. That it's a business deal kind of uh, are a um, let us say a partnership that you have with the environment that you live in. And that you have a responsibility to make that uh, exchange. To breathe in and to breathe out. 
that nothing else depends quite upon life itself as the breathing. I mean, look how long people can go without sex. Look how long people can go without food. Look how long you can go without water. But you can't go very long without breathing. And the COVID attacks the breathing. Right? So that means that every breath is an important point. Because if you don't take this breath, you're in trouble. A lot of people think that they have to go to the hospital when, in fact, what you really need to do is breathe. I got it, man. I'm, I'm glad I got on tonight because I wasn't going to get on. <laughs> glad you told me that. Um, I was going to ask, it, unless Jeff has something, because I'm Jeff, you haven't said anything or asked anything, but if you do, um, or if you don't. If right now, it says there's 10 people on this call. Most of them have their cameras shut off. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I was just, I was curious about dependent arising. If anyone else was curious about that, I don't know, but I was, I was reading up on it and it um, was interesting to me because I can, before I, I stopped practicing again, Domorado, I, I got discouraged (laughs) and then I got COVID. So (laughs) it's, it's very funny that um, a life or death scenario uh, made me breathe again, (laughs) mindfully. Um, but what I was going to say is that right up before I stopped and I gave up on practice, I was reading a lot on dependent arising and dependent origination on Dhamma talks. Uh, this guy was talking about Bhikkhu Buddhadasa's, um, uh, observation of dependent arising. And I was r- reading about the scale in particular and how it goes from ignorance to volition. And then I think name and form and our formation and the name and form and consciousness and all of these and then you know craving clinging and i thought it was interesting i was wondering if you had anything to say about it um probably nothing else there's nothing else to talk about everything is about paticca samupada if you look at the Pali, the word paticca actually means conditioning or causation and the uh the sam is um kind of like everything or true or whatnot. Uh, And so uh, upa is arising or coming up and dana is giving. So the giving of the arising is conditioned. Everything is conditioned. That nothing happens without conditions. That this is the basic in English, we use the word causation or um, cause and effect. And normally then Paticca Samapada is um, uh, talked about it in the sense of causation. But a better word to say is that things are dependent or interdependent or there are causations or factors. Now, an example of that would be uh, lemonade that you have lemon juice but if you add sugar to it and let us say some ice and some water then you can turn the uh, lemon into lemonade right but that only means that the sugar conditioned the lemon into lemonade that the sugar did not cause lemonade 
that there was a number of factors that caused lemonade, including the sugar and the lemon and the water and the ice, right? So when we understand it like that, that makes it easier for us to understand basically how the mind works. Because Paticca Samupada is exactly nothing but a map of how the mind works to where we go from one state into the into a state of bad feelings or dukkha. Now the um, let us say the ordinary or the magical or the religious way um, of thinking about Paticca Samupada is that these pieces go over lifetime. But in fact, the entire sequence of Paticca Samapada often happens within a second. The whole sequence of events happens within a second. That's a lot of stuff happening in one second. Okay. But basically what we can say is some of the things were just kind of laying around as, as uh, uh, the situation. But when those things were then immediately conditioned, they immediately turned into something else. And so if we look at it from this perspective of the beginning of Paticca Samapada in the 12 steps, it starts with Ajiva or ignorance, and then the second one is Sankara. If we look at that from the psychological point of view, it actually makes huge amounts of sense. Because when we are children, we collect things together. We pile on a pile of uh, memories. But we pile on that set of memories and set of decisions ignorantly when we're children. So that we've already made a whole bunch of ignorant decisions and ignorant ways of looking at the world so that later when we actually look at the world in a new moment of time, we begin to influence it with our past. And when we're uh, actually understanding something that we see, that understanding is called the Nama Rupa, which means that we're taking something that's actually real, a Rupa, a physical object that we see with the eyes, and we're coming in and naming it. How can we name it if we have no information at all about it? So the very, very young child doesn't know how to make any sense out of his environment at all. But as adults, we learn to make sense out of the environment based upon what we know from the past. So if we know from our past that all yellow cars are bad, they fall apart, they're no good, that they will always rust, that there is no, because my dad had a yellow car and it was a terrible piece of junk. Therefore, all cars painted yellow are pieces of junk. That's a stupid example, but that's the kind of thought process that kids pick up. There's actually one example of that that's quite amusing, but it's real. And that is that this one girl, um, whenever her dad would come home drunk or at any particular point in time, he would uh, become very violent and she was quite afraid of him. And she always found the hiding place behind uh, the radiator. And then one time she got really burned badly by the radiator because she was trying to hide from behind it and it was hot. And she was too stupid to uh, recognize <laughs> that she was burning herself for no reason at all other than an old bad habit. So 
this is how the mind works. It works in the sense of making decisions about things that later those decisions are ridiculous. They're irrelevant. But we continue to make the same decisions over and over again because of our conditioning or because of the past. So this is basically how Paticca Samupada works so that once we create our own image of something that we see, then it's that which impacts us and contacts us, not the actual real thing. Can you get that? All right, here's an example is, is that uh, two guys are standing on this side of the street and they see someone coming down the, uh, the street on the other side. And each of these two guys that sees that person across the street have different feelings about him. Let us say it's because of the way that that other person is dressed. And their conditioning then has to do with one guy will be very happy to see him and go across the street to say hello while the other one is trying to find a weapon to shoot him. All right. Why is that kind of thing happening? It's because of the people's past. Let's say that someone is wearing a particular uh, form of clothing and that our recognition of the clothing. You've heard the concept that clothes make the man. Well, let us say then that the person is coming down the street on the other side is dressed in a nun's habit. And one of the guys was in Catholic school as a kid and he got beat by a nun every day. The other one is inviting himself into uh, joining the seminary. And so when he sees the nun, he's very happy to see her. But the other guy who was in Catholic school and had beaten up by a, uh, or whipped by a, a nun, he hates that habit and he hates the person in the habit. And neither one of them know the person in the habit. That in, ha in fact, the habit may be a Halloween costume. <laughs> There's not a nun in that habit at all. Okay, so you get the idea then that we make what we call um, first impressions. But the impression that we make is not based upon what the people see, it's what they think that they see. And what they think they see is based upon their own past. Hmm. This is the point of Salayatana, where we what we see is not what we get, what we see is what we think we get or what we want or what is in our mind. So we can actually then say that there's two kinds of um, consciousness. One is the consciousness of seeing, like I see the object. I see the light turned on. I see the dog walking in the yard. Any kind of thing, I just see it. And then there's another kind of seeing, which we can say like, I see what you mean. Or I get the light. This is a different kind of seeing. This is the seeing based upon our evaluation and our processing and coming up with a, uh, a concept. Now, when somebody says, I see what you mean, he may not see what the guy meant. The, my guy may be talking about one thing and what we perceive is something else. This is called miscommunication and it's very, very common. But we also make those mistakes within our own minds that we think we see something like we think we see something that's dangerous when in fact it's not dangerous at all. We're just looking at it wrong. 
from my own childhood. My mother had the story that when they lived down by the river, that one home one day the the family came home and there was a huge snake, huge big snake in the yard, uh, right in the middle of the uh of the, the the living room, and the dog immediately attacked that snake. Everybody thought it was a snake, and the dog attacked the snake. And as they were getting the lights on, the dog was wrestling with Grandpa's belt. <laughs> and the whole family had mistaken that, that belt for a snake. Now, that's the whole way that we do our whole lives. So going back to that fear that Robert was talking about is, is that that's merely something that he put into his perception. That had nothing to do with the present moment. Sitting there on the floor and taking a deep breath, there's nothing to be afraid of. And yet the fear comes up, and so this is the time to gladden the mind, which means that we can tell ourselves there is nothing to be afraid of. That the fear is just an old habit. It's just so an old habit that we pick up, and we trigger those habits, and then they arise. And that there was nothing really to be afraid of at all. So this if is I'm the point. What you're Go saying, ahead, Alex. Yeah, if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, you're saying that the fear is nothing more or less than basically uh, an object which we have perceived to be dangerous or threatening, which is actually probably more or less harmless but the way it is disguised in like a Halloween costume, as you said, makes it appear threatening and like mm -hmm. fear. So the actual fear is not really even fear at all. It's just an appearance of fear. Right. We can also say that this fear comes out of a mechanism within the DNA. It's basic um, programming coming out of instinct. And it's called the self preservation instinct a better term for it would be an organism's organism protection instinct but we perceive danger and then we, the fear is the message that there is danger now that message of there is danger is very very good when we do actually live in a dangerous environment but almost no one that i know of actually lives in a dangerous environment and yet they feel danger because they remember being in a dangerous environment before. When they were kids, when we're kids, everything is dangerous because we don't know anything. Hmm. But now as an adult, you can begin to trust your wisdom. You can say, no, I can know that there is no gorilla or bear in the closet. Yes, I know that there is no witch under the bed. But children don't know that, and so they become afraid needlessly. So in that case, then, would you say that it's natural for us as young children to develop these responses to danger and fear, even though we didn't know exactly what danger or fear was? Or do you think it's a product of our environment and the way our environment processes? It's our environment specifically. Here's an example of that is that. Um, in Thailand. Children 
are allowed to sleep anywhere they want to. And almost always a young child wants to sleep with his parents. In the West, they have the idea of wealth and can you actually provide your child with a room of his own, even if the child doesn't want a room of his own. That you'll hear little children on a regular basis come running into mommy and daddy's bedroom. Oh, mommy, daddy, I'm afraid. Instead of just letting the child crawl into bed with them, they'll say, no, go back to bed. Go back to your bed. Go away from us. Don't find your own security by being with mommy and daddy. You've got to go confront your own uh, animals. And so the, the child, because they're separated from their parents, is put into an environment that the child perceives as dangerous because they've lost their safety net. They've lost their parents. In Thailand, the children will choose to where they want to sleep. And normally by the time that they're six or seven or eight or nine years old, they want to sleep on their own, but two and three and four-year-olds, they want to sleep with mommy and daddy. Hmm. So the uh, the way that we're raised, when you actually, we can talk about it in this sense, you use the word natural. The answer to that is, is that it is natural for a victim or a, um, let us say a young child to be defenseless and he needs to be defended. Every mother and daddy knows that they have to protect and take care of their kid. Then why, when the kid needs protection the most in the night, do they abandon the child to another room? They put the child in a crib instead of having him uh, close at hand. So this is a way that we can recognize that in our Western society, the way that we train our children makes those children susceptible to excess fear. But daddy, if he is wise, he will not only go into the bedroom and say, okay, well, let's go look in the closet. Let's make sure there's no bears in there. Let's go look under the bed. Let's make sure there's no witches under there. But just to be sure, why don't you come stay into bed with us and we'll protect you. But often that the, the parent will go in and say, there are no bears in the room. Shut your mouth and go to sleep. That doesn't help yeah. that child at all. So these fears that uh, that come up, they come up normally, perhaps, but not naturally. That in fact, the child is in an unnatural environment, and that's why the fears would come up. This is really interesting because when I was younger, I <clears throat> I had an obsessive. My my therapist, anyway, they said I had OCD where I had to do like a number of things every night, uh, an hour before bed, like fixing up my room and stuff like pressing my door against the wall or, you know, remaking my bed so that I wouldn't get haunted or that ghosts or terrible scary things wouldn't take me away in my dreams or take me when i'm sleeping and i believe i remember like telling my mom and dad about this but i think at a certain point i didn't tell them about it at all and it was just like i was just left to deal with it on my own mm -hmm. 
wouldn't it have been better if they had in fact helped you deal with it so that you could go in fact to sleep with them when you felt afraid yeah i mean that security can you begin now to give yourself that feeling of security can you go for i mean that's what ocd is all about is the going and checking to make sure that the doors are closed to make sure that the windows are locked to make sure i mean that's one of the common uh aspects of OCD is that repetitive behavior. Another example of it is washing your hands because they might be dirty and have germs. And then 10 seconds later, we wash our hands again because it might have gotten dirty again. And then after 30 minutes of washing my hands, I'm sure that they're clean now and I can go away for 10 minutes and then I got to go wash my hands again. And two weeks later, my hands are raw from washing and washing and washing because I was afraid that there were germs. So I would say, like at this point, am I? Like, I don't. I don't have. I mean, I don't think of ghosts anymore. I don't do that habit, that OCD repetitive habit that I had when I was like elementary school through high school. But do you think that the fear that was dealt with in those moments and that was encountered is the very same fear that comes up for me now, normally? Do I have to answer that question? You know the answer to that. Or let us say it this way. How many different varieties of fear do you know? Or yeah, is just that fears, fear is fear? Fear is fear. Yeah, I was just and wondering if like. That's where it came from, because for a long time ever since I had my awakening experience, I thought I didn't really have like much of a traumatic childhood. So I don't know where it came from, but I do remember. I don't know. I don't know of any child ever raised anywhere in the world that comes out trauma free. Childhood itself is a trauma. I mean, getting born is a really, really big trauma. I remember the event myself. I mean, there I was laying in my um, hot tub, my own personal hot tub, even had my uh, uh, my juice uh, fed right in. And the next thing I know, an earthquake happened, the bottom dropped out, and 10 seconds later, a doctor was holding me up by the uh, the heels, beating me on the ass. Well, I let out a yell so loud that was so long that I didn't stop yelling until I was about 35 years old. <laughs> birth is traumatic. It's Wait, traumatic you remember your actual birth? Oh, I'm giving you a joke already. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. I thought so. <laughs> I was like, man, Dom is the real Dama dude. He remembers <laughs> He remembers Anapanasati like times three. Yeah, the first thing I said is stop beating me, Dr. Young. I know how to breathe already. (laughs) You're right. You you really, I mean, you raised a good point there with what you said about hospitals tonight. Like it is a completely backwards world. They call them trauma units. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And we um, are we are traumatized as children because the child himself does not have the skills mm-hmm. that you have now. 
the question is, now that you have the skills, why are you still feeling the way that you felt when you were a child? Robert, you got your hand up. Um, yes, this is partially a question and partially an observation. I feel like the um, the technique brings up lots of our like childhood traumas and like psychological issues we haven't dealt with. And so there'll be like these big That's the hard exact things moment. that we're not able to gladden the mind um, in spite of. And then like we have to gladden the mind anyway. And just sort of like when we like it's like it's like um, like you're, it's kind of the same as in mindfulness. You sort of objectify the sensation. You like see it as it is. And when you gladden the mind anyway, that's like the sort of the moment of healing. And then an even bigger one comes up and it kind of gets worse, but gets better. Uh, have you ever heard of the, it's actually in the Bible verse and it's quoted uh, as a quotation of Jesus. And it's stated this way, ye shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Have you ever heard of that? Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Uh, Gloria Steinem actually is attributed to uh, completing that statement. And she said it this way, ye shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, but first it's going to really piss you off. Uh, and scare you. Yeah. All right. Now, uh, in meditation, what that means is, is that if we're sitting quiet and you use the word, it's going to come up. All of the stuff that we have been not looking at and avoiding has already been coming up. It's coming up on a regular basis. But when we're quiet and we start to observe, we can actually see that stuff. And most people, like Gloria Steinem says, is not going to like what they're seeing. And that's we karma, do, right? We we're do not like, like to see the fear. We do not like to see the uh, uh, the anxiety. We do not like to see the um uh, uh, the anger or the resentment. We don't want to see those parts of ourselves. But the only way to be free of them is by seeing them clearly, making friends with them, and recognizing that some of those things have kept you alive. Um, I have another question, which is, are those things that come up the true karmic origin of our everyday Doubts and fears. I would not try to look for true comic origins. That that's dealing with the deep, deep, dark past. What we need to do instead is deal with those things that come up right now. It's whatever's in here in the moment. That's right. That's right. Of course. I guess right. that's more of a theory kind of thing that gets answered on its own. Exactly. That th this is actually common in psychology. We call it uh, psychological archaeology. Psychological archaeology. What does that mean? That they go digging in the past looking for the source of the problem. That one of the jokes, I've got a lot of psychologist jokes. Psychologists, are, some of them are very good at coming up with some really spectacular jokes. So, uh, anyway, the, um, the, the joke is, is that the psychologist and the client, you see, the client goes to the psychologist because he has much trouble with his relationships with other people. That, in fact, uh, everyone who knows him labels him as an asshole. 
And so he wants to kind of get over this and he goes to the psychologist and the psychologist and he start doing some psychological archaeology and they run across the fact that when he was four years old, his mom gave him a great big spanking. And then then he and the psychologist figured out that all that is because his mom gave him a spanking that he's an asshole. And neither one of them figured out that the mommy gave him a spanking because he was already an asshole. <laughs> oh man. It's like the chicken and the egg. Yeah. Exactly. So we do not need to go ask chicken and egg questions. Because chicken and egg questions are always definitional anyway, and that we're trying to look for something to blame or some reason. Oh, that's why I'm the way that I am. And sometimes people will take permission. Oh, if I know the source of it, then that means that I have now permission to deal with it. Well, we don't even need to need the source of it in order to be able to deal with it. We can just deal with it because here it is. And we don't have to know where it came from. And so there's no real use to do psychological uh, archaeology. But when I talk about it in, in general terms of where all of this stuff comes from, everybody does a little bit of uh, psychological archaeology like Alex here and says, oh, yeah, That's you're right. I did have fears when I was a little kid and I didn't deal with them very well when I was a little kid. And my daddy didn't help me deal with them when I was a little kid. Now, I don't like it that I've got to deal with it now. And the answer to that is, now that you see it, be very happy that you can deal with it. Be very happy that you can say, all right, now I can understand that I can actually deal with that stuff. I can get it out of my system. Guys, I'm going to go. I need to just rest for the rest of the night. Go this breathe. Great, though. I'm breathing. Yeah. Lay, lay you. on your Thanks side and breathe Get well. better soon, Alex. Thanks, guys. Good to see you guys. Talk that stuff out. Week. Get lots of tissue and throw and fill that tissue with all that gunk and then flush it or <laughs> do something with it, but get it out of the house. Okay. <clears throat> all right. All right. Keep your lungs clean. Okay. Working. In, out, in, out, up, two, <laughs> three, four. I got this breathing going now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, guys. Okay. Alex, we'll talk later about Petitia Sabapada. We've just barely scratched the surface. Can't wait. Or actually, I can wait. Yeah, you can wait. You you can (laughs) happily wait. You can wait happily. Never mind. I'll I'll wait happily. All right. Bye. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So, Robert, you're the only face left. Looks like it. You still got seven people. Oh, on. we've got we've got someone else. That's yeah. great. Go ahead. I asked loads of yeah. questions already. Nice to meet you, that, by the way. Is that Miguel? Yeah, I see is, a, yeah. a cushion. I, um, I'm not sure what that last name is, but if Miguel is the first name, that's me. So nice to meet you all. Damarato. Hello, Miguel. Uh, can you turn your camera to your face? Oh, uh, sorry. Um, hmm. That's off. Maybe you've got it, the wrong camera. You, you've got the camera that you're not looking at. You're, uh, you've yeah. got to, to the back of the phone. 
Yeah. Anyway, I'll just do this. Hey. That he's... works. Oh, now I can see you. Okay. Hello. Welcome to the crowd. We yeah. Have a sangha here. Yep. It's my first uh, first time listening in. It's um, it's very interesting. Thank you for uh, letting me uh, you know, piggyback. Yes. Do you have any particular questions about what we've talked about so far? Uh, yes, I do. Um, you've been talking about um, this kind of happiness thing, and um, since it's my first time, I don't know anything about what uh, what that is. If it was like a, a breathing practice, a mantra, or I don't know, um, but that would be something that I'd be interested in getting a quick rundown on. All right. A very, very quick rundown on it is, is that one of the most important teachings of the Buddha that is referenced in numbers of suttas. Most people in the West miss, and that is the concept of the conception of wholesome versus unwholesome thought. Just mm -hmm. what's happening in the moment right now, the very little thought that you're having right now can either be wholesome or unwholesome. If it is unwholesome, then it will be associated with feelings that are unwholesome. So the kind of thoughts that we have that are unwholesome will lead to the kind of feelings like fear, anxiety, uh, stress, uh, grief, longing, sadness, the whole round of it, guilt, resentment. These are the kind of feelings that we have that are uh, based upon unwholesome thoughts. But if we're having wholesome thoughts, then those wholesome thoughts will gain feelings of gladness, joy, security, satisfaction, and comfort. And so we're going to start uh, having the, the kind of thoughts that are wholesome. Now, one thing that's very interesting is, is that the, re the ratio between wholesome and unwholesome is very much like the ratio between truth and not truth. An example of that would be, how old are you? You don't mm -hmm. have to tell me, but just think about it. Mm -hmm. You can say, that, all right, that there is an age that is a true age. And there's only one true age. You can be either sloppy or accurate, but you're still talking about one age and you're telling the truth about it. But if you were going to tell a lie, there's no end to the number of lies that you could tell about how old you are. Mm -hmm. Sure. That I'm 300 years old. I'm 10,000 years old. I'm 10 minutes old. I mean, there's no end to the number of lies that we can tell. Also, there's no end to the number of uh, unwholesome thoughts that we can have, but the number of wholesome thoughts are few. We can also look at unwholesome thoughts in the sense of critical thoughts, thoughts of judgment, thoughts of this is good and this is bad, thoughts of this is okay, but it needs improvement, yeah, or you do should do this or you should do that. Basically, all of the rules and all the ways that we have been taught are generally unwholesome thoughts that a wholesome thought would be okay. Everything is okay right now. 
Now, okay. imagine it this way. The kind of unwholesome thought that we could have, there's no end to the kind of things that could possibly happen right now. I mean, I just saw a flash. There's a nuclear bomb that just went off over there. It's going to get me in the 10 seconds, okay? Or another thought would be, wow, the train is broken. Or maybe that the dog uh, is uh, sick. There's just 10,000 things that we can think of that will give us bad feelings. But when we have the kind of thought, wait a minute, there is nothing to be afraid of right now. Everything yeah, is okay say, right so now. Mm-hmm. Pardon? I was I was just going to say, yeah, you flip it over. There are just as many good as, as potential bad. That's right. And so what the training has to do is find some good thoughts that we can repeat that we know are true and factual. And that we can say those over and over again, and we can feel good because we're now having wholesome thoughts. Examples of a wholesome thought is everything's okay. Wow, I'm glad I'm still alive. No place to go, nothing to do. The spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Everything's fine, everything's all right. There's no worries, no no problems. Another one that we can use is, I can do it later. I can do that later. It can wait. I don't have to do anything right now. Everything can wait. It can all slow down. Yeah, that's another one. Is it a very, uh, because we're running around, so a very healthy thing to say, a very wholesome thing to say is, slow down, you move too fast. You gotta make the moment last now. Mm-hmm. Those are the um, the kind of happy thoughts that we can right. actually give ourselves that are true. Now we don't necessarily get uh, wholesomeness out of saying positive things that are not true. They need to be true. Like I am the king of the hill, or I am the champion of the world is a little bit too much. I don't have to be the champion of everybody's world. I can be just the champion of this world. Hey, I can breathe. I have good set of lungs. I can see. Yeah, I've I got can... a good set of lungs. That's right. I can breathe. I can still breathe. Yeah, I can walk. I can feel. I have all the basics. Mm-hmm. And that's all we need are the basics. Everything is all right. Everything is fine. And it all spreads out from there. It, everything's God. I think <laughs> everything is everything's Express fine. Yeah, it, we live in a paradise already. This is good yeah. enough. <laughs> everything is fine. Yeah, beautiful. So that's the basic teaching of the Buddha right there is let's have wholesome thoughts. Mm. And then we begin to see that it's our unwholesome thoughts that lead to bad feelings. And so if we can prevent ourselves from having a bad thought in this moment, then we don't have to feel bad right now. But if we have the thought of, oh, I can feel bad, I can feel good now, but I'll feel bad later, that's not necessarily a wholesome thought. Instead, we can say, well, I can feel now, be good. So let tomorrow take care of itself. I'm building the habit. If I can feel good now, I can feel good then. Doesn't matter what happens, I can manage, I can handle it. Well, as long as you can stay in the moment, that's where you should be, and you'll 
Eventually and the moment it. is fine. All of our problems and worries are in either in the past or in the future. They're either uh, complaining about something that's already happened or worried about something that will happen. And in fact, right now, nothing's happening. <laughs> yeah, everything's fine. Everything's fine right now. So this is a basic teaching of the Buddha, and it comes in with the practice of the uh, Eightfold Noble Path you probably heard of and the Four Noble Truths. And basically what that means is, is that we become wise to this dukkha, wise to these unwholesome thoughts. And we begin to see that all of life's troubles are manufactured within one's own mind. Mm -hmm. that, that my wife does not cause me any trouble at all. She causes herself a lot of trouble, but she can't cause me any trouble. All I all can happen is I can cause myself trouble when my wife is causing herself trouble. Right. You have to mm. clean up your own act first. Absolutely. Yes. If we can clean up our own mind so that we can have wholesome thoughts, then we can deal with the wife happily, even when she is having her own pity party. And then you don't if, have to join. If she still is, we can have compassion towards her. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we make friends with even her anxiety. Mm -hmm. Because, because she, her anxiety she, has been keeping her alive all of these years. Yeah. You just need to be uh, able so she can see it, see mm -hmm. that she's being seen, but, you know, within bounds of reason, I guess. <laughs> well, Miguel, I'm really impressed. You're picking it up quick. <laughs> That's great. Robert, you got your hand in the air. Um, yeah. Are some thoughts more wholesome than others, or is it just if, if the if we're like if they're true like you said are some thoughts more wholesome than others or is it just whatever works um i would say offhand that when we go asking those questions that we're often doing it from a critical mind in the sense of this thought is wholesome but it's not wholesome enough it's not good enough yes yes like a lot of times i will I sometimes like give myself extra brownie points if I feel happy for no reason at all because it feels more spiritual to do that. But so I guess my question is, is it like brownie points to feel happy just for the sake of feeling happy versus feeling happy for something else like having a comfortable chair or a family who loves me? Well, part of the happiness then is not the comfortable chair itself, but it's the recognition that the chair is comfortable, that you're recognizing in this present moment, not the chair that you sat in last year, not the old chair that used to be comfortable, but is broken into the basement right now. But the question is, is are you comfortable right now in this chair? I see, right. So we're rewarding ourselves as well at the same time. Exactly. We're grateful for something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's great. Right. That's great. Thank you. Yes. Just stay in this present moment with what's going on right now is marvelous. It's good enough. But we don't have to figure out everything. Yeah, but we don't need philosophies. Right. We don't need to figure things out in order to be happy. We can be very happy while we're ignorant. 
Well, all I think we need to do is to have enough knowledge to know that it's okay to be happy, even when we don't know about all the things that we could be unhappy about. That's beautiful. That's a really nice thing to say. Thank you. Somebody said something. Was that you, Miguel? Uh, yes, but um, the, the thought just uh, flew out of my mind. <laughs> okay, so um, continuing along then with this uh, point, we can now see that if we have those wholesome thoughts, but we judge them, then though judging of the wholesome thoughts is unwholesome. Yes, it's an unwholesome thought following the first wholesome thought. So, so I succeeded right. already. Uh-huh. And then the next is an unwholesome thought. So now we have to become wise to those kind of things. And we can say, oh, well, never mind. I'm still okay. Yeah. Now, yeah. at one time, uh, the way that I was uh, expressing it and teaching it, many students would come up with, because I was using the word joy to uh, practice joy. And then the students will say, well, I do feel joy, but it's not enough joy. And so then I started working with the word satisfaction because that's a little bit more clear that if we can get ourselves into a state of satisfaction, how can one then be dissatisfied with how much satisfaction they have? The satisfaction is in fact satisfaction. And we can be satisfied with little and we can be dissatisfied with a lot. So the so the point then is, is let us just be working on, is this just good enough? I don't have to be elated in joy, but if I can be okay as it really is and just let that sit, that kind of joy then, that little bit of joy, that little bit of satisfaction begins to grow because that's what we're thinking about and that's what we're talking about and we let it grow. And so we grow in joy, we grow in satisfaction, but we don't grow in satisfaction when we're dissatisfied with the satisfaction that we have. We have to yeah. actually get ourselves into a state of satisfaction, and this is good enough. Air how tiny it is, a piece of satisfaction, at least this is satisfaction. Yeah. It's like satisfaction kind of does its own growing, like on its own. It does on its own, exactly so. Um, that... Um, you, you've heard about the concept of light of day, that light of day is a good disinfectant, that people in the old days would hang their laundry out in the sun to dry. And that was the right way to do it. Now we have clothes dryers and those don't do good enough. So we got to put downy and disinfectants and all kinds of stuff in there to dry the clothes when in fact the light of day does a better job. So if we recognize that we're going to start shining light of day on our, on our mind and be able to really see what's there, then we can see that that's a disinfecting process of really looking and seeing what's there instead of, um, let us say, putting our dirty laundry out in the sunlight because now all we can see is the dirt and, uh, and whatnot. 
And so this is back to that point that Gloria Steinem was making about, yes, uh, if you are shining the daylight on it, then you can see the truth and that truth will set you free. But there's going to be a disinfecting process going on that when you first shine the light on it, you're going to be shining the light on some pretty dirty stuff. And we have to be willing to see that. Can you be satisfied in actually looking at the worst dirt? Well, what can you do otherwise is just be more dirt by being dissatisfied with the dirt. Yeah, well, you can look to the other part that's clean instead. Yeah, we can look at the other parts that are clean. And so I don't have to worry about what's dirty. I've at least got a clean spot now. And if I keep disinfecting it with daylight, it'll clean itself up on its own. So that's another analogy that we can use. But the real point is, is the, uh, the issue of satisfaction, that we have to find some satisfaction. And we can only find satisfaction with wholesome thoughts. That if we have unwholesome thoughts, that those unwholesome thoughts are generally thoughts of dissatisfaction, thoughts of something that can go wrong, thoughts of problems that are occurring, thoughts of wrongdoing in the past. Then, in fact, when the mind is clean right now and we're happy right now, why should we begin to think about the things that happened bad that happened last month or last year? That you're not that person anymore. That's in the past. If you do not approve of that behavior now, but you did approve of that behavior then because you did that behavior, you obviously approved of it. But now you don't approve of it. Why should you feel now bad about what you thought was the right thing to do then? Instead, we could give ourselves credit for learning. Aha, uh -huh. that's not who I am. I don't do that anymore. That's not me. I learned that lesson. So why should I go around feeling bad about behavior that is in the past when I don't do that behavior now in the present? That I should only be concerned about the bad things that I'm doing right now and stop them right now. Throw that stuff out of the mind and be here now and be satisfied. I'm okay. I survived it. Even though I was very, very bad last week, I survived. <laughs> I'm still here. I'm still breathing. But the person that did those things is not who I am now. That I'm not permanent. I'm not everlasting. That we change. Every breath is a new opportunity to change. Just like looking in the mirror. Yes, the mirror is an, um, uh, often uh, used as an example, especially in more modern times when people have mirrors. In the time of the Buddha, almost nobody had a mirror. Hmm. They didn't even have plate glass. About the best they could do is pound a piece of metal and smooth it out so that they could have a brass uh, uh, mirror. So mirrors were not uh, uh, common at all in the time of the Buddha, and they were often quite valuable. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, monks were not allowed to have mirrors in the time of the Buddha. And even nowadays, we practice, I don't need a mirror. I I'm almost never use a mirror. I can shave my head and shave my beard without a mirror. Then, mm. in fact, it's quite marvelous that I don't have to look in the mirror at all because I'm really, really an old, ugly dude. 
And I'm the only one that doesn't have to look at me. <laughs> Isn't that marvelous that I'm the one that doesn't have to put up with how ugly I am because I don't look in the mirror. <laughs> That's funny. But, hey, you're a good-looking bald guy, man. <laughs> but anyway... Um, we can use the, the concept of mirror and in the sense of reflecting that we can look back on the past, but we need to do it with a wisdom eye or we can, uh, let us say, use it in the sense of a very, very clean mirror so that we're actually looking at what really, really did happen. And that's often not even possible because we we remember our past based upon uh, the distortions of our pres of our perception in that moment. Sometimes it's better just to go ahead and look in the mirror and just accept what you see there at face value. Mm -hmm. Ex exactly. Or another way of thinking about it is, is that we don't need a mirror from the past. We can look at what's happening right now because that's the mm -hmm. point. What's going right. on right now? And this is there to be looked at, and we spend too much time looking in the past. That in fact, every army that's prepared for war is always prepared for a war that they've already fought and won. They're not prepared for the next war. They're not even looking at the next war because they're too proud of how well they did it in the, in the last war. Or maybe worse, they lost the last battle, and so now they want to reenact it and rewin that war, where the next war is going to be completely new, needs new technology, new weapons, new um, uh, plans, new uh, strategies. And so, if we think of it like that, we can say, wait a minute, the past is not going to do us much good, because in fact, the past may mean that I've got to repeat the past, which is now completely inappropriate for what's happening in the present time. So we let the past be in the past. It's dead. It, it does not exist. It only exists in a memory, but the memories that it exists in is all faulty. A good example of that would be a corporate uh, meeting that's got a camera. And let us say that there's 10 or 15 people in that meeting and the meeting is as videoed when the people come out of that meeting and walking down the hall and chatting with each other. Every one of them will have a different view of what happened in that meeting. Some will say, well, this happened and other people say, no, I didn't see that happening at all. That in fact, everyone is probably wrong. The only way that you can find out what really happened in that meeting is with the recording except that most things are not recorded, not not like that, not on video. And so a lot of what we remember in the past didn't really happen at all. That's why we have arguments with people is because we will argue with them, well, this happened, and they'll say, no, that happened. And they'll say, no, I remember exactly what happened, and two people are remembering differently exactly the same thing that happened. How can that possibly be if every human being is capable of having a good memory? In fact, our memories are quite shoddy. We're not very good at remembering. Well, There's a really, go ahead. 
you were talking about habits from early childhood, then um, there can be habits like that uh, that make us jump to conclusions, right? Right. That's because that habit is repeated over and over again in new present moments. So what happened originally back when I was two or three years old is no longer relevant. It's the fact that I was doing that same thing over and over again. I did it when I was six. I did it when I was seven. I did it when I was 15. I did it when I was 19. So what does it matter? The original time that it happened, the fact is, is that I keep repeating the same behavior or having the same thought patterns over and over and over and over again. Right. And, and that's another thing that we begin to wake up to is, is that, hello, darkness, my old friend, I've seen you before. This is not new because I kept doing it over and over again. And I'm doing it again now. And so we could say, oh, wait a minute. I don't have to do it the way that I've been doing it. I can mm -hmm. do it a new way. I don't have to do it based upon the past. Past habits. So we have two different kind of past here. We have past memories, and then we have the buildup of habits over time. Right, right. And now it's time to start generating some new habits to repeat the new things over and over and over again that are wholesome. Over and over and over again, we repeat the wholesome, and pretty good, pretty soon it begins to outweigh all of the unwholesome behaviors and habits that we have been. Uh, let us say ignorantly or unintentionally practicing. Now we're intentionally practicing healthy, uh, wholesome thought, thinking. Mm -hmm. And so we're actually now developing new habits or developing new skills. And so if I build the skill up to where I can handle this present moment when what's happening right now, then that will help then develop the new skill right in this moment to handle the next thing that happens. Yeah, so Better. basically you want to, to be, you don't want to be reactive in the moment. You want to just accept whatever's coming in. Precisely so. Excellent. Yes, in fact, that word reaction is a very, very important word that we can actually put into Western Buddhism as a word that we can start using, reaction. Now, there's two kinds of reaction. There is, let us say, response reactions that uh, we react to stimulus. But normally when we're reacting to stimulus, we're not reacting in the present moment. We're reactivating or we are redoing something that we've been doing before. So most always our actions are not just actions, they're reactions because of recurrence of old actions. And so when we react to something in the present, normally what that means is the action that we're actually taking in the present moment is a reaction to something that happened long ago that's not happening now. But this particular thing that's happening now, instead of taking uh, present new action based upon present new data, we simply react the way that we have been acting in the past. We just do the same thing over and over and over again. This is one of the ways of using the word uh, samsara, is we do the same thing over and over again, sort of kind of expecting a new result. You've heard that. It's attributed to Einstein, but I don't think that he said it. 
that um, the, the definition of insanity is when people do the same things over and over again, expecting a new result. I think the key thing here, though, is that a lot of these patterns are unseen by us at the moment. And we need to have enough perspective to be able to actually be able to see the, that, oh, my gosh, that is a pattern. And uh -huh. I've been reacting the same all along through time. Uh-huh. Precisely so. Exactly. This is actually now uh, right into the uh, to the weeds or into the details of the teaching of the Eightfold Noble Path. So this is how the path works. Is number one is sati. We have to wake up in this present moment, or another way of saying it is to remember to be here now, to remember to pay attention, to remember to look, or uh, a way of saying it is to wake up. We can wake up and then uh, investigate what's going on. An example of that would be the term wake up to smell the coffee. Waking up to smell the coffee means to smell, we have to take a deep in-breath. We have to inhale. We have to pull this stuff in so that we can actually uh, visit and understand the atmosphere or the aroma, the smell of the coffee. So we have to wake up to what's happening in our senses right now. We have to wake up to what's happening with the nose, to wake up to what's happening with the eyes, but most importantly, to wake up to what's actually happening in the mind. What kind of thoughts are we having? And so this is the first thing, is to wake up, and then the second thing is, is to look. That uh, right noble view is not a viewpoint or a view uh, like a worldview or um, a perspective or, or something like that. But actually, it means investigating, viewing, looking directly right now to see what these thoughts are that we're having in this last past half second or two. All right. So uh, this whole point then is, is that we have to see that those thoughts are wholesome or unwholesome. And then we make a change with right effort. We have to take the effort to throw the unwholesome thoughts out and throw and put in wholesome thoughts, which is another way of saying gladdening the mind. Hey, I can handle that. So let us say that we're sitting and thinking about an argument that we had with Aunt Susie. And then all of a sudden we wake up and we recognize that, hey, Aunt Susie is not here right now. I don't have to argue with her right now. Not only that, but if I'm thinking about arguing with her, I'll be planning to argue with her in the future. And maybe the things that I'm planning on saying, she will not react to them the way that I want her to react. And so I'm actually kind of um, making myself angry and hostile and upset about Aunt Susie, and Aunt Susie's not even here. And I'm setting myself for a future event to where I'm going to get into another argument with Aunt Susie. Why can't I have really pleasant thoughts about Aunt Susie? Well, Aunt Susie, I'm so happy you're not here. <laughs> I'm so I'm so happy I don't have to argue with you right now. And so this is the way that we gladden the mind is we recognize that these arguments or these um, uh, discussions that we have with other people in our mind are not very beautiful. They're not very beneficial. They're not very wholesome. 
But if we have loving thoughts about that person, wow, when I see Aunt Susie, I'm not going to argue with her next time. I'm going to tell her how much I appreciate her wisdom. Even though she's wrong this time, that's okay. I don't have to straighten her out. That's not my job. My job is to sit here and just enjoy the moment. That's the only job that I've got. And I'm really good at that right now. (laughs) (laughs) And so this is the way that we practice. This is actually now three of the steps of the Eightfold Noble Path of wake up, sati, look at what we're doing, make a change. Once we've done those three things, the next thing is, is to enjoy the change. That, hey, I can change. Hey, I can clean out my own mind. And that builds confidence. It builds what the Pali word is shada or shrada. And that we gain that because we can, um, let us say, congratulate ourselves because we can now see dukkha. We can now see the truth. That the truth does not have to piss us off. I don't have to be angry at myself because I saw myself being angry at Aunt Susie. I can forgive us both. Never mind, no problem. And when we have that never mind, no problem attitude, it begins to grow into confidence. And that confidence, I can handle it. I can handle anything. Yeah, I can handle this next breath. Watch me breathe. And so these are the ways that we practice. And these are the four things on the Eightfold Noble Path that are so magnificent. To wake up, look at what's going on, make a change, and then congratulate ourselves for making the change. And we can feel good. I congratulate myself for actually being able to feel good rather than having to get stuck in an argument with Aunt Susie in my own mind. I have gratitude for that every morning and every evening. That's the gratitude, yes, to be just relieved and grateful for the fact that we don't have to hassle ourselves. (laughs) Well, I think that this has been quite uh, a talk. Does anybody have any questions? Robert, I see you still on there. Robert um, uh, Cohen, I, you're here, here. No questions Robert for me. Robert Cohen's working in the background also and several others. So, um, Robert, here on screen, do you have anything to say? I did at one point, but uh, I don't know. I started thinking about my chair and feeling good about it and then good about myself. And I kind of just, yeah, <laughs> went away <laughs> just like that. That's in fact right, that um, in a way we can say that questions are a kind of dukkha. They're a kind of dissatisfaction, that I don't know something that I want to know. But when we're practicing this, there's no doubts. I mean, I can just sit here and take a deep breath and just be happy, and there's no doubt about it. I can do it. (laughs) It's scary stuff, man. (laughs) Yeah. Now I know why all the, the fears and stuff come up. Yeah, Mm -hmm. crazy. Thank you for this talk. It's been really, really helpful. Excellent, guys. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation, too. Thank you so much for being involved. We've run now about two hours.
very much. Miguel, I hope to see you again. Nice to meet oh, you, Miguel. Me too. Same here. Thanks, guys. It was a real privilege to be able Bye -bye. to and I enjoyed it a lot. Okay, Robert, you're Colin, you're you're back again. I'm back. Just here to say bye bye, everybody. Great to see you. Okay. Happy Friday. Bye, Robert. Yes. May everybody have a very happy deep breath. <laughs> uh, this is a wonderful moment. Enjoy it. It's great. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> bye bye, right. folks. See ya. See you guys. Bye. Bye. Ciao, guys.